Good evening. Be open in your Bibles to Ezekiel 26. We just sang that song, We Believe. There's no reason not to. God's not been short on not one of His promises or any words that He has spoken. None have missed the mark. And you'll notice that today as we go through this prophecy concerning Tyre and how it was prophesied centuries beforehand, played out exactly like the Lord said it would. Surprise, surprise. Just to kind of give you an idea of where we're heading over the next seven weeks. That's, that's hard to give a seven-week forecast like a meteorologist, right? It's, it's only about half right. But chapter 26 is going to concern a, a prophecy against Tyre. Chapter 27 is a lament for Tyre. Chapter 28, you're going to have a prophecy against the prince or king of Tyre. 28b, you're going to have a lament for the king of Tyre. Right, you, see, you see how this is, is kind of flowing. Then you're going to give about five verses of, there of Sidon, which Tyre and Sidon, the kind of sister cities we have. A prophecy against Egypt, chapter 29. Chapter 30, a lament for Egypt. 31, a prophecy against Pharaoh or king of Egypt. 31, a lament for the king of Egypt, lament for Pharaoh. So we're fixing to get kind of knee-deep in this study on Tyre. There's really a lot written about Tyre in scriptures from Isaiah to Jeremiah here in Ezekiel. There's really a lot about this town or this city. Now chapter 26 is going to be about the judgment and destruction of Tyre and this, this uh, chapter I would title just ju- the judgment of Tyre. That's really what it's going to be concerning. But I just want to make sure that everyone's kind of somewhat fresh on what Tyre is, the history of Tyre, and where it's located, and whatnot. Look, Tyre is going to be a capital city of the Phoenician Empire. You've heard about the Phoenicians throughout Scripture. This is one of their capital cities. There's actually, it's, it's actually a two-part city. You have Old Tyre, is what they call it, which was on the mainland. Off the mainland, out in the middle of the Mediterranean, not necessarily middle, it's about a half a mile off the coastline, you have the city of Tyre. An island, so to speak, well fortified, you know, had easy defenses out there, no real way of getting to it outside ships. So you have old Tyre, and then you have what is we could refer to as the fortified capital city Tyre. That's where it later moved to. So it's a robust city. It's, it engages in all sorts of trade. They were known for their naval capabilities, their ship buildings, and they're just uh, they're the way they just handled, you know, what we call commerce across the Mediterranean. Financial hubs, we could look at it that way, connected really the Mediterranean to the known world. Now this is a little bit lengthy, but if you want to turn to 27, just so you don't think I'm stretching this, chapter 27, verse 12, I'm not really going to get into it, I'm just going to read this. Chapter 27, verse 12 said, Tarshish, did business, did business with you, that's going to be Tyre, because of your great wealth of every kind, silver, iron, tin, lead, they exchanged for your wares. Javan, Tubal, and Mexheth traded, traded with you. They exchanged human beings and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. From Beth Togomar, they exchanged horses, war horses, mules for your wares. The men of Dedan traded with you. Many coastlands were your own special markets. They brought you in payment, ivory, tusk, and ebony. Syria did business with you because of your abundant goods. They exchanged for your wares, emeralds, purple, embroidered work, 
fine linen, coral, and ruby. Judah and the land of Israel traded with you. They exchanged for your merchandise wheat and mineth, meal, honey, oil, and balm. Damascus did business with you for your abundant goods because of your great wealth of every kind. Wine of Helbon and wool of Sahar, the cask of wine from Uzal, they exchanged for your wares. Wrought iron, cassia, calamus were bartered for you and your merchandise. The Dan traded with you in saddle cloths for riding. Arabia and all the princes from Kedar were your favorite dealers in lambs and rams and goats, and these did business with you. The traders of Sheba and Ramah traded with you. They exchanged for your wares the best of all kinds of spices and precious stones and gold. Haran, Cana, Edan traded. Traders Sheba, Ashur, and Chilmar traded with you in your markets. They traded with you in your choice garments and clothes of blue and embroidered work and in carpets of colored material bound with cords and made secure. The ships of Tarshish traded for you with your merchandise. So you were filled and heavily laden in the heart of the seas. That is quite a list, right? They didn't really buy into just have a few things on the menu. They, they traded in everything. Kind of like a modern day Walmart or Amazon. They traded in literally everything. So I hope you get the picture of this robust city of commerce. We have to kind of picture that. This isn't some little small town that you may picture in your mind. Okay, now we need to remember the, the history of Israel and Tyre. They actually did have a relationship, if you're familiar with it, throughout maybe your daily reading. We read about King David, 2 Samuel 5. Don't turn there. 2 Samuel 5, verse 11, it says there that Haram, Haran, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, carpenters and masons who built David a house. Haran, king of Tyre, sent supplies, laborers, to Solomon for the construction of the temple. He was paid. You know, this wasn't necessarily charity. But in 1 Kings 5, it actually says there, there was peace between Haran, the king of Tyre, and Solomon. And the two of them made a treaty. So you see, these two nations actually had what Scripture calls a brotherhood. Okay? Now, Israel began to increase on the world stage. They began, began to be quite a powerful nation, and the balance of power seems to be shifted. And when that happens, Tyre becomes jealous. Throughout Scripture, there's really nothing that states that Israel did anything to warrant this animosity that came their way from Tyre. There's even an arranged royal marriage between Tyre and Israel, the ten northern tribes, just to see if you know this, First uh, Kings 16, it says there, talking about a king named Ahab, it said, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabal. So he, he actually, he's going to go further than Jeroboam did, and Jeroboam was a great sinner before the Lord. It says there that Ahab took for his wife Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon. So Tyre and Sidon, right? He took the daughter of the king, the princess there, and tried to have this arranged marriage to maybe strengthen the uh, relationship between the two. So he may have did it for some kind of a political gain or maybe some military strength, but it, he really brought a lot of sin as if Jeroboam didn't do enough. Jezebel was um, 
was a Baal worshiper. You know, she had the 450 prophets of Baal that she ate supper with on a daily basis. So she was uh, really led them headlong into uh, Baal worship. So we transgress a little further through the Bible, and we're told in Amos 1 that Tyre delivered up a whole people to Edom. And they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So what that's saying in Amos is that Tyre was involved in slave trade, which we actually read that in that list of stuff they bought and sold. People were part of that. They captured a people and they sold the people of Israel. They captured them. They sold them. They didn't leave anybody. It says a whole people in this little town. An entire community was taken captive and sold as slaves. No women, no children left. This is how the people of Tyre, this is the relationship at this point in time. Actually, Joel piggybacks on that. Joel 3, 6 says, talking to Tyre, you have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their border. They have forgotten, according to Amos, the, their covenant of brotherhood. They've forgotten the treaty that they had made with Solomon, the relationship that was so strong in the days of David, in the days of Solomon. They had become rivals, we could say. They had forgotten that bond that once existed and replaced this brotherly love with animosity. And it's this strained relationship between Tyre and Israel that we're, we're kind of working towards here. So I'm just trying to give you a little bit of background. And to, to give you a little bit more background, Zedekiah is king, you know, in the final days of Jerusalem. He's the final king you know, before it's actually completely ransacked. And Zedekiah tries to make this alliance with Ammon, with Edom, with, um, you know, Moab. He tries to do it here with Tyre and Sidon and Egypt. He tries to, you know, just rally the forces, try to stitch together a, a little coalition to kind of push back against Babylon. And the whole time, Jer Jeremiah is telling them, don't do that, don't do that. The Lord has given these nations into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, and there's really nothing they could do about it. So, all this is going on. So let's get to Ezekiel 26. We'll just read the first six verses. In the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, because Tyre, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha! The gate of the people is broken. It is swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will bring, and will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea a place for the spreading of nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So, here we go. The prophecy of Tyre. It states right here in the first verse that this happens in the 11th year. So just to kind of build a little more context around this, we're told in Ezekiel 24... You want to turn there, Ezekiel 24, verse 1. It's in the ninth year. In the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, Ezekiel, 
Write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. So it's in the ninth year that Jerusalem siege has been laid against Jerusalem. We're told in chapter 33, verse 21, that in the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said the city has been struck down. Okay, that's pretty easy math. But in the ninth year, Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem, and in the twelfth year, Jerusalem fell. And we are, so that's a three-year siege for those who struggle with math. That's a three-year siege, which, by the way, does give, it does give us some insight to the awful conditions mentioned by Jeremiah in Lamentations. We know when Jeremiah is writing the book of Lamentations and he's talking about that siege and how some of the people, their skin is stuck to their bones, they're so frail, and how they're eating their own children. That's just the dire conditions that the people of Jerusalem found themselves in during that siege, that three-year siege. But here we're in the 11th year, so we're about maybe, maybe a year and a half to two years into this siege. It's hard to say because it doesn't really give us the month here. We're not given the month, so we really can't be certain. So Tyre is looking at this siege, maybe two years into it, and they see basically the certain outcome of Jerusalem. And they're planning their next move. Their next move was, was pretty obvious. Because it tells us in verse 2, Son of man, because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem, this is why the Lord is going to be against them. Aha, the gate of the people is broken open. It swung open for me. I shall be replenished now that she's laid waste. So this is what she said. This was her attitude. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. Or as one translation put it, I shall be filled. Or as another one put it, now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. You see, this she sees the downfall of Jerusalem as a means of gain. She's going to be able to expand her markets. Maybe if that trade route was, was destroyed, they're going to have to come through Tyre. Money. This is, this, is, this is going to be good. This is good for business. Verse 3 says plainly, Therefore thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am against you, O Tyre. Jerusalem is soon to fall. Tyre is, Tyre is really ecstatic over this. The Lord is angry. So the people of Tyre's greatest danger isn't Babylon. The people of Tyre's greatest danger is they have made themselves an enemy of God. It says, I, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. So here's the judgment. We know why the Lord is angry with them, why he's, he's going to judge them. Here's the judgment. I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. Now look, this, as if I hadn't... If we hadn't covered, we'll cover a lot more ground as we get going faster. But this is going to be key to understanding this passage. Okay? If Babylon, because sometimes you read this and Babylon's a, Babylon is this world superpower and, and you know, they've kind of just swallowed up nations as they go and they've had, they have these other nations kind of fighting under them, right? They, they're, 
They have these conquered armies that's fighting alongside them, kind of like a conglomerate of nations. So if you're reading that, when it says, I will bring up nations against you, well, that's referring to Babylon and all the nations that kind of compromise this world superpower. It's going to leave you with a lot of questions. Going to leave you with several questions. Main problem is because Babylon doesn't accomplish the destruction that's going to be detailed here in chapter 26. Okay? And, and the reason I kind of headbutted this pretty early on is, is I happened to preach through Zechariah. And in Zechariah, by the way, which is uh, post-exile. So when Zechariah is writing, they've done been into Babylon and come back out. And Zechariah still discussing the destruction of Tyre. So we know it didn't happen at, by the hands of the Babylonians. Okay? And, and two, just to kind of keep going, Acts 12. We can read in Acts 12 that Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Basically, they were there asking for peace because Tyre and Sidon, their country, depended on Herod's country for food. We can read in Acts 21, verse 2. This is Paul. Having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went ahead and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it, we left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, and there the ship was to unload its cargo. So Tyre is still functioning as a port city in Acts 21. So how does the destruction that we're going to read about here fit the context of a Babylonian attack? These are some of the questions I had. So how can we rightly understand this passage? And I think it's pretty simple. Verse 3 says, I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. So you got wave after wave after wave. It's not a real one wave that just does all the destruction. It's just that constant battering, that wave after wave, nation after nation after nation. History tells us it's Babylon, Persia, Greece, the Ptolemites, the Seleucides, Rome, the Ser- even the Saracens in the Middle Ages. It's just nation after nation after nation, wave after wave after wave. So the nations, the point I'm trying to drive at here is the nations does not refer to Babylon and all those supporting nations. The nations really refer to nations, different nations, right? Uh, not, not, it's going to extend past Babylon. Are y'all, are y'all tracking with me? All right. So, to understand this, the pronouns we're going to read about here are going to be key. We're going to read in verses 3 through 6, you're going to see the word they. They. By the way, that's plural. That's talking about the nations. They. They. When we get to 12 through 14, I'm sorry, 7 through 11, we're going to read the he. He. And that's going to be very specific. It's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. You know, Babylon by extension, but it's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Then when we get to 12 through 14, we're going to get back into that they language, that plural language. So this extends past Babylon, not Babylon alone. It's the wave after wave after wave, the nation after nation after nation that is going to wear down Tyre. Okay? So we have, uh, we have this uh, pronouncement of judgment made. Why it's made? Because they see this downfall of of Jerusalem as a means to profit. They're kind of giddy over this. And the Lord has said, here's the judgment. I'm going to bring up many nations against you as a sieve brings up its waves over and over and over. And then 4 through 6 is really going to detail 
some of this judgment. We'll just kind of read through it one more time. They, the nations, shall destroy the walls of Tyre, break down her towers. I will scrape her soul from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets. And that just refers to, you know, really a desolate rock that they would lay their nets on to dry. That's what that's talking about. Spreading of the nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord. This is His decree. It's going to come to pass. And she, ha- she shall become plunder for the nations. And her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. And they shall know that I am the Lord. All right, so that's the, that's the summary of where we're going. Now, where it says her daughters on, in verse 6, when it's talking about her daughters on the mainland, that's really talking about to those settlements on the mainland. You know, old Tyre that I spoke of earlier on the mainland, that's what it's referring to. The NIV actually captures that in its translation. It says, and her settlements on the mainland shall be ravaged by the sword. So it's just... I guess you could call it poetic language, mother, daughter language, mother being the capital city, daughters being those dependent cities upon their mother there. In uh, both instances where this daughter's language is used, both instances it's going to talk about the mainland, the mainland, the mainland. So it seems to be kind of driving us to that. This shouldn't really, um, shouldn't shock us. This book has been filled with a lot of sister language. You know, it's talked about you know, your sister Samaria and the sister Judah, or even called in at times, I think it called Sodom their sister and Gomorrah their sister and things along those lines. So it's, we've seen that language throughout this. Okay, now we're going to move into chapter, uh, verse 7. We'll read 7 through 11, and you'll pick up on the he's here. This is going to be Babylon specifically. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring up against Tyre, from the north, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots and with horsemen, and with a host of many soldiers. We'll, we'll just pause there and move on. So this is the first time throughout this book we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar mentioned by name. We've read a whole lot about the king of Babylon, but this is going to be the first time by name he's mentioned in this book. Nothing big there. And all this is singular language, even when it refers to a host of many soldiers, as it says here. That's actually singular in, in, in the Hebrew here. It actually says a Greek, I mean a great army in some translations. Singular, one, Babylon, not all the nations that, we, that are coming. So this is going to stand apart from the many nations, plural language that we'll pick up on as we get down to verse 12. Now, there's some more things I'm sure. I'm sure some of y'all are asking these questions. Maybe nobody is. But it says here that he's going to bring Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings with horses. He's going to bring them from the north, against Tyre from the north. And you may, you may not, be saying Jerusalem is south of Tyre. I know that because I looked at a map. But you got Tyre is going to be north and west of Jerusalem. So how's he going to bring Nebuchadnezzar from the north? Well, an easy answer to this on how and why Nebuchadnezzar would come from the north is this. Jeremiah 39 tells us, you remember when Zedekiah, that, that weak king, as, as the city was falling, he kind of just snuck through that little crack in the wall and kind of escaped, right? It says there that the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah 
in the plains of Jericho. So they caught him. And they had taken him. They brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And there he passed sentence on him. That's where he's going to slaughter his children in front of his eyes and then gouge out his eyes. So the last thing he sees is his own sons being slaughtered. So Nebuchadnezzar, although the city was being sieged and attacked in Jerusalem, he's actually up in Riblah at like a command center, which, by the way, is north of Tyre, in case you were wondering. So it looks like when the Lord says, I will bring Nebuchadnezzar from the north, he really meant what he said, because that's where Nebuchadnezzar was. He was up there in Riblah in Hamath. Calls Nebuchadnezzar here, king of kings, and that's just a reference to his... um, his rule, you know, he was a king and he actually ruled over kings. Zedekiah being one of those. He was, some of these are the puppet kings that he would put in place. They may be king of Jerusalem and king of Tyre, king of this, but he's their king. He is the king of kings. Verse 8, humanly speaking. Verse 8, he, Nebuchadnezzar, will kill with the sword your daughters on the mainland. That's talking about those satellite cities. He will set up a siege wall against you and throw up a mound against you and raise, raise a roof of shields against you. He will direct the shock of his battering rams against your walls and with his axes he will break down your towers. His horses will be so many that their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen and wagons and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city as men enter a city that has been breached. With the hoofs of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will kill your people with the sword, and your mighty pillars will fall to the ground. Let's pause right there. So the mainland again, Nebuchadnezzar is going to take the mainland. He takes old Tyre, but he doesn't successfully take that remote island. History states that Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to that remote island for 13 years. 13 years he laid siege to it. He may have been able to kind of work out some kind of um, maybe a treaty or I guess I should say some kind of an agreement with him to where he put his king over Tyre. It does seem that way because as we get into chapter 28, it does seem as if the king of Tyre is slain. So it does seem like Nebuchadnezzar took the king of Tyre executed him, and placed his king on the throne. But I'll let whoever teaches 28 sort that out. But this 13-year siege, he did not reap the plunder of the city. He does it. And this is, this is it's spelled out for us. Look with me in chapter 29, verse 18. Chapter 29, verse 18. Okay, 29.18, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald from the, the helmet, just wearing that helmet that long period of time. Every shoulder was rubbed bare, yet neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he had performed against her. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall carry off it, Egypt's wealth. And this 
and despoil it and plunder it, and it shall be the wages for his army. Wages, kind of picking up on that word. I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment for which he labored because they worked for me. We'll cover that again when we get there. But it's, this is, the Lord is plainly sovereign over all this. This is the people He's raised up to accomplish His purpose. They're working from Him. They're doing what they want to do. They're chasing all their evil heart desires, but they're fulfilling His will. They're working for Him. But the reason I wanted to come here is it says plainly that Nebuchadnezzar didn't really reap the spoils of Tyre. He didn't get anything, as it says here, for the, what he labored for. But if you look in verse 12, it says, They will plunder your riches and loot your merchandise. They. All right, see, we transition back to the plural pronouns. This is the nations. This is like Alexander the Great. The Romans. This, this is what it's talking about. Verse 5 said that Tyre would become plunder for the nations. Here do we have in verse 12, they, the nations, will plunder your riches. Not Nebuchadnezzar. So it goes on. They will, they will plunder your riches and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. Your stones and timbers and soil they will cast into the midst of the waters. And let's just stop right there. Your stones and your timbers and your soil they will cast into the midst. This is exactly fulfilled by Alexander the Great. You can go read this historically. When Alexander the Great was marching, he, he, got, he wanted to come into the city. They, they denied him entry into that island city. So he took those timbers and rocks and stones and blocks from, from old Tyre and built a causeway out there. He built a land bridge, a half a mile land bridge. And you can actually look on a map today, today and you don't see that north-south coastline anymore. It kind of jettisons out and goes around Tyre as that land bridge he had made has kind of silted in over the years. But he built a, again, a human land bridge to go out there and sack the island city of Tyre. Alexander the Great did exactly what it says here, casting um, their uh, stones and timbers and soils into the midst of the sea. He threw those things out there and just piled dirt on it and went out there and just ransacked them. So now we're going to get to 13 and 14, and we're going to see I, this is the Lord talking here. The Lord is going to be the one who's against them. He's already said that up in verse 3, right? He's the one who's against them, and he's the one who's directing this campaign, by the way. The nations here are, are merely foot soldiers under his command. Verse 13, and I will stop the music of your songs, and the sound of your lyres shall be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock. You shall be a place for the spreading of nets. You shall never be rebuilt. For I am the Lord, and I have spoken, declares Yahweh, the Lord God. So clearly there we see that the Lord is the one who's kind of orchestrating, sovereignly commanding this as it, as it happens. 15 through 18, this is really what, what many commentators refer to as a funeral dirge or lamentation. So let's just read this. Thus says the Lord God to Tyre, Will not the coastland shake at the sound of your fall when the wounded groan, when slaughter is made in your, in your midst? 
Then all the princes of the sea will step down from their thrones and remove their, their robes and strip off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground and tremble every moment and, and be appalled at you. And they will raise a lamentation over you and say to you, How you have perished, you who were inhabited from the seas, O city renowned, who was mighty on the sea. She and her, inhabit, she and her inhabitants imposed their terror on all her inhabitants. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall, and the coastlands that are on the sea are dismayed at your passing. So this is that... This is that funeral dirge that the commentators talk about here. It's really talking about their commercial impact, right? The nations that get engaged in commerce with them are actually saddened, shocked, terrified that someone as, as grand as Tyre could actually fall. And oddly enough, oddly enough, history will repeat itself again, and one day we will once again hear this same lament you can hear this in Revelation 18. I'm not talking about it's over Tyre. It's actually going to be over Babylon there, but it's just so reminiscent to me. It says here, Revelation 18, verse 12. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. This is exactly what's going on in the days of Tyre, right? They're, they're weeping and mourning and saddened and frightened over the downfall of Tyre. The same thing will happen one day in the future, we will see the same thing. No one will buy their cargo, cargo of gold and silver and jewels and pearls and linen and cloth and silk and scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, articles of ivory, articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, frankincense, not Frankenstein, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves. That is, human souls are engaged in slave trade yet again. In, um, in, in the future here, verse 14, the fruit for which your soul longed is gone. All your delicacies and all your splendor are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gain wealth from her, they stand afar off in fear of her torment. They're weeping, they're mourning. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, for in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste, and all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and those who traded on the sea, stood afar off and cried as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like this great city? So it's just ironic or funny, not in a ha-ha way, how history repeats itself. We see these people that are so dependent on Tyre, and, and they're such a, a wicked city that when God strikes them down, they're at a loss for words. They're... they're Weeping, they're mourning, they're terrified, as it says here in this lament. Now, verses 19 through 21, to me, is really on the heels of a lament. It seems like the Lord is kind of personifying Tyre as one who is dead, buried, and forgotten. He's going to personify Tyre here in verses 19 through 21. For thus says the Lord God, When I make you a city laid waste like the cities that are not inhabited. When I bring up the deep over you and the great waters over cover you, then I will make you go down with those who go down to the pit, to the people of old, and I will make you to dwell in the world below, 
among the ruins from of old with those who go down to the pit, so that you will not be inhabited. But I will set beauty in the land of the living. I will, I will bring you to a dreadful end, and you shall be no more. Though you are sought for, you will never be found again, declares the Lord God. Thus is the, the indictment and the judgment against Tyre. And it, is, it has been fulfilled to a T. Nebuchadnezzar did exactly what the Scripture says he's going to do here. And then once he was done, you have the Persians. You have Alexander the Great who actually comes and actually takes it yet a step further. Rome, and then it goes on into the, the Middle Ages. I think it was on up around 12 or 1300, and they're completely sacked. You can look on, uh, you know, Google is great for a lot of things. You can look on a Google Photos of Tyre, and there's really nothing but just rocks. And when you get a good picture that actually shows, you can see the foundation of the city underwater. Just like it says here, I will cover you with water. He's buried that city, and it's never going to return again. Thus says the Lord. He's spoken, and it is done, or it is certain. Dead, buried, never to return again. In our day, the city of Tyre just doesn't have quite the uh, stigma that it did in their day. It was just a, a grand place back in their day. So let's dig some application out of this, and we'll, we'll call it a week. So, application one, the Lord... Yahweh is sovereignly ruling the affairs of every nation. That's Ammon, that's Edom, that's Sidon, that's Tyre, that's Egypt, that's Babylon, that's Jerusalem, that's the United States. God is sovereign over the affairs of all men at all times. Maybe another thing to take away from this is the certainty of the Scriptures. I mean, this was prophesied centuries, even millennia ahead of time. And it played out exactly as Scripture would have it play out. Here's another one, I guess, a little more, a little more personal, is you need to caution yourself against rejoicing at the downfall of others. I know some of you are saying, well, I would never do that, brother. Maybe you're better than me. But there's oftentimes it's easy to see this as, as an opportunity to gain. You know, uh, natural disasters. You know, people right now are trying to buy up land in Maui. You know, trying to buy it for pennies on the dollar. They see an opportunity. Uh, you, you have the same thing through the COVID pandemic. There's all kind of people trying to, to make profit off those things. Every time a tornado or a hurricane or any natural disaster takes place, there's always some that are going to come in and try to take advantage of it. They see it as an opportunity to gain, an opportunity for profit. They may say division is good for business. Wars are good for the economy. These are all things I've heard. Storms are good for business. But if we live, and that's a quote, if we live in a Christian nation, which is likely not, we shouldn't have to have laws that restrict price gouging. Should we? I mean, if, if something, if a natural disaster happens and all of a sudden you see an opportunity to, to charge $10 a gallon for gas, Somebody should not have to tell you that's not the right thing to do. And that must just not. But we have to have laws that control our, our sinful nature. We shouldn't have to have laws that control price gouging, but we do. Proverbs 17 verse 5 says, He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. The legacy reads this way. He who is glad at disaster will not go unpunished. 
when the Lord, or when natural disasters strike, the Lord's sovereign over all that, do not be glad that there's an opportunity for you. All right, how about this? This is Luke 13. Maybe it don't fit, but it did to me, so y'all get it? Luke 13. There was some present. This is the people talking to the Lord Jesus. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans who blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. He answers that for them. No, I tell you. But unless they repent, you will all likewise perish. Or what about the 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So as we look at these people of Tyre here, and we take what, what the Lord is saying, do we look at the people of Tyre and see them as worse sinners than ourselves? Or are they really just that much worse than we are? I could see myself fitting in pretty good in Tyre. I mean, I'm afraid of the ocean if I get too far out there, I'm sure. But, but I could see those, those, that my nature coming out in that, in that city. But the message to them is the message to you. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You're no better. They're no greater offenders than you yourself are. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. That's the message we have to take away from this. These people in Tyre are no worse sinners than myself, yourself, your parents, your kids, or anyone else. We all need to repent and turn, trust the Lord Jesus Christ, cling to Him, trust Him. He's, he hasn't... He hasn't missed not one word. So if you would please stand.